sea otters. The almost unendurably cute subject of YouTube videos. One of the very few non-primate mammals who can use tools with their furry little hands. Forced to near extinction because of their luscious pelts and a catalyst for the birth of the modern environmental movement and the end of the Cold War. Bet you didn't know that. The Otters of Amchitka Island, this time on the Cold War Vault. a voracious appetite. He will eat a quarter of his own weight in a day. Shellfish, his favorite, but also quantities of fish and squid. Table manners? He's irrepressible. That clip is from The Warm Coat, a U.S. Atomic Energy Commission film from 1968 that is easily the most precious of all their cinematic endeavors and the most deceptively bizarre. The film tells the story of Harvey, the wily otter, as he and other sea otters are relocated from Amchitka Island, Alaska, to other Aleutian Islands with no otter colonies. The film asserts that they are gluttonous in feeding and inefficient in breeding, and yet since their near extinction at the beginning of the 20th century, their Amchitka Island colony had grown so much that they would need to be relocated. Which was, when you think about it, exceedingly generous for the Atomic Energy Commission, an agency charged with maintaining civilian control of nuclear weapons development. Amchitka Island is a barren, windswept strip of land, 40 miles long and 4 miles wide, bounded by the Bering Sea and the North Pacific. It sits in the Rat Islands of the Aleutians, 650 miles from Dutch Harbor. It is shrouded in fog and covered by clouds 98% of the time. This chapter in Amchitka's story really begins with the decidedly pre-Cold War heavy exploitation of natural resources through the 18th and 19th centuries. The plunder of the sea otter population to the point of extinction and the use of the island by trappers and whalers. When these activities threatened extinction of each of those species by the late 19th century, conservationists took an interest in the island and lobbied for an international treaty. This treaty became the North Pacific Fur Seal Treaty of 1911, which, in Article 5, also protected the precious sea otter. A short while later, an executive order under William Howard Taft made the island and its neighbors a nature preserve and added birds and reindeer to the list of protected animals. While the conservationists of the day were giddy with success, Taft's executive order was not entirely genuine. 
It also ensured that the island could be accessed by the government at any time for lighthouse, military, and naval purposes. And the creatures on Amchitka, with fur or feather, would just have to get out of the way. That's exactly what happened in World War II, when the needs of the federal government completely superseded the ecological management policies that had been in place since at least 1911. 15,000 soldiers took up residence on the island. The terrain was stripped and mined. It was churned into mud by the military traffic and heavily polluted by petroleum, the toxic remnants of an asphalt factory, and pools of human waste. The marine ecosystem was severely disrupted by soldiers looking for giant clams, among other things, and otter poaching for amusement undid decades of recovery work. At the end of the war, the army presided for a few years over Amchitka's dump pits. Its rusting machinery, leaking tank farms, and vacant quonsatuts. By 1950, all of these were left behind, and the island was abandoned. Enter Harry Truman and the Cold War. By late 1949, the U.S. had detonated nuclear weapons in the air, on the ground, over water, and underwater. General Kenneth D. Nichols wanted to put one underground, too. He was the chief of the Armed Forces Special Weapons Project, and his plan set in motion a search for the perfect venue. Finalists for this exciting opportunity would have to satisfy nine criteria. These were safety, sovereignty, security, public relations, climate, geology, cost, accessibility, and size. Any test site within the continental United States was rejected because, one, in the words of one memo, there was a lack of knowledge as to the size of the area which would be rendered radioactive by any underground atomic explosion, and two, well, because it was within the continental United States. So military eyes immediately set themselves on Canada, or possibly Australia, which as the same memo states, offered some advantages. Islands in the Caribbean, including Puerto Rico, were rejected because of the relatively dense populations which would need to be relocated. Hawaii looked good for a time, but the same irritation of relocating populations ended that plan. A few sites in Alaska were considered and rejected for remoteness and extreme climate, except for one island in the Aleutians, Amchitka. It seemed to satisfy all of the criteria except for the admission that the, quote, climate is bad. This discussion through memos also mentioned with regard to Amchitka that, quote, additional consideration of wildlife would have to be taken. Despite its stormy skies and irksome otters, Harry Truman approved the proposal for the conversion of Amchitka to a nuclear testing range on October 30, 1950. 
It is likely that what outweighed the foggy weather was the existence of World War II infrastructure. There were three airstrips, paved roads, piers, and a number of buildings that had not been taken over by the weather and wildlife that would make easy and cheap work of converting a nature preserve to a nuclear test site. The deep water of Constantine Harbor on the southern tip of Amchitka must have sealed the deal. The Department of Defense saw Amchitka as a nearly perfect site. In a press release that was written but not disseminated in March 1951, it is described as the only practical site which meets all requirements of uninhabited land area suitable for instrumentation, control of hazards, isolation, and meteorology. It seemed that everything was in place for the test in July 1951, until there was a rattle of the first environmental protest. Surprisingly, this did not come from the grand old organizations of the conservationist movement, the Audubon Society or the Sierra Club. It came from inside the government. The Department of the Interior began to agitate for a change in plans almost immediately. In early 1950, the Aleutian Islands refuge manager, Robert Jones, had been made aware of the testing plans by a reconnaissance crew on Amchitka. He was enraged and began a chain of official protests through the Fish and Wildlife Service. A meeting was called between the National Security Council and the Department of the Interior. Assistant Secretary Dale Doty of Interior was not at all pleased with the discussion. He wrote a letter to the Executive Secretary of the NSC on the 13th of October 1950, in which he explained his displeasure. The tone of the letter moves from cordial to a multi-point defense of the island and the otter. He writes, My dear Mr. Lay, from the standpoint of the Department of the Interior's responsibilities, it would hardly have been possible to have chosen a more objectionable area than Amchitka. First, the influx of personnel would undoubtedly provide opportunity for the molesting and killing of animals. Secondly, there is the likelihood of direct injury to the animals, from blast, falling debris, flash, and possibly direct radiation. Thirdly, the danger of long-lived radioactivity from the fallout being deposited over wide areas of shoreline and shallow water. This latter condition might destroy the future value of Amchitka as a breeding ground for the sea otter. The Department of State joined the Department of the Interior in a protest against the use of Amchitka. State explained that testing a nuclear weapon so close to the Soviet Union would cause a diplomatic rift. Amchitka sat only about 700 miles from the Soviets' Siberian frontier. Here, the politics of the Cold War coincide with ecological concerns. They are parallel objections on different grounds that seek the same result. Here, as early as 1950, there is the alliance of politics, policy, and protest that moved beyond conservation and formed the modern environmental movement. 
We can never know exactly to what degree the protests from interior and state changed the course of planning. What is sure is that the construction of an easier test site with better weather and an exciting proximity to Las Vegas was already on the minds of military planners. Rear Admiral Thomas G.W. Settle, head of the project, ordered the transfer of personnel, supplies, and funding from Amchitka to Nevada. It was his last official act of command before retirement. A long shot and the cost of secrecy. What do you do when you need to tell the difference between an earthquake and a nuclear explosion? It's an obvious question when all of your nuclear tests had been pushed underground by the Limited Test Ban Treaty of 1963. The U.S. wanted to listen to what the Soviets were up to, and so the answer to that question is the Vela Project. In February of 1964, the governor of Alaska and the state's congressional delegation were given a secret briefing on the project. Vela was a three-pronged approach to detecting sneaky Soviet nuclear tests, and one of the prongs, Vela Uniform, would detonate nuclear devices underground, listening for seismic waves and learning how to tell the difference between tests and natural earthquakes. These tests would be conducted under Nevada, Mississippi, and Amchitka, Alaska. None of the group present at the meeting raised any concerns, and the tests were scheduled for 1965. The protests that had foiled the use of the island in 1950 had not been forgotten by those planning for this new round of experiments. Especially difficult would be the resistance by the Department of the Interior, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and particularly those on the ground in the business of managing the Aleutian Islands refuge. A decade and a half had also seen significant increases in public awareness of environmental issues. Among many other things, these were the years that saw the publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, a book that really brought ecological issues into the public conversation. If you don't know about it, the book and the political firestorm it created are worth a look if you're at all interested in the beginning of modern environmentalism. In any case, the government's response to these challenges was secrecy. It was a choice that would haunt those handling nuclear testing and its environmental impacts until the very end of the Cold War. Secrecy had always been the rule in these matters, secrecy surrounding fallout and those it affected in the American West, secrecy and outright lies surrounding environmental effects in the Pacific testing areas, Secrecy and mistruths even surrounding the effects of the bomb in the most general sense. But what these planners failed to take into account was that this new experiment was going to run headlong into a growing new public demand for accountability in the realm of ecology 
in the environment. In short, the otters were going to be too cute to ignore, and it was going to start a war. The test scheduled for Amchitka was named Longshot, and from the moment it was made public, the Atomic Energy Commission made easy assurances that everything would go perfectly and no other details were given. An environmental activist from Alaska named Celia Hunter wrote in a letter to Senator Bob Bartlett that she was most concerned by the, quote, shroud of super-secrecy which has cloaked this whole program, making it impossible for truly concerned citizens to obtain any indication of what was going on out there. This seemed to ring true with other Alaskans. The Alaska Conservation Society which Celia Hunter helped to found, grew from 18 members in 1960 to about 400 at the time of the long-shot test. In 1965, the conservation journal Audubon offered an explanation for and a condemnation of the government's secrecy. The reasons for the top secrecy, it said, was to dupe the Department of the Interior and to get the official approval rubber-stamped. In the editorial, written by the Audubon Society's president, Carl W. Buckheister, there is abundant concern for the safety and security of the wildlife on Amchitka, but what drives Buckheister's condemnation is a critique of the government policies which allowed Amchitka, which he notes was a national wildlife refuge after all, to be selected for nuclear testing in the first place. In June 1965, a special wrist slap came from the American Society of Mammalogists. While it would be expected that the complaints raised by the society would be primarily ecological in nature, and most were, the group also criticized the government's handling of the long-shot test in terms of secrecy. The group wrote, It appears questionable that the public interest was served by classifying as secret the 1964 operations on Amchitka Island. We request that President Lyndon B. Johnson issue instructions that under no circumstances will parties visit or establish camps or undertake any activity on uninhabited islands without first consulting with officials directly responsible for the protection of flora and fauna. Richard Van Gelder, the chief mammalogist at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, took the criticism even further and referred to the government's handling of the Amchitka issue as, quote, an example of a general disdain for public and scientific interest. Those who vocally protested Longshot were not satisfied by the politicians and the government scientists who voiced a constant chorus of simple assurances. The reason for this goes to the core of the problem. While the project planners saw the public reaction to the test as an ecological issue, they completely missed the subject of real irritation, secrecy, and government handling of information. 
Most of all, there was public concern over the political and military systems that had been allowed to bring about the test and its ecological impacts in the first place. By 1965, those who stood in opposition to the test were more concerned with the government's handling of the issue than they were with the safety and security of the sea otter colonies. And there was something very new afoot. It was the collusion of ecological protest with the protest of government policy. Despite the public response, which did not yet rise to the level that one might call an outcry, the long-shot test was carried out on the 29th of October, 1965. It was an 80-kiloton detonation in a shaft drilled to 2,297 feet under the surface of Amchitka. Long-shot did not on its own, crystallized some new environmental movement. What the Longshot test did was to wake the public up to a growing threat posed by government activities to the environment. The Department of Defense and the Atomic Energy Commission, along with their political enablers, either failed to see or just failed to act on this shift in the mentality of the public, and especially those portions of the public that would become their most ardent opposition. These groups were not just about conserving an island's ecology. They set out to challenge and to change the system itself. Next time on the Cold War Vault, this episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. This week's music by Daniel Birch. Follow The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault. And take a look at coldwarvault.com for show notes on this series and anything else I might see fit to print. You can now subscribe to the Cold War Vault on all the major platforms. Please do. And please like the show on iTunes. It really, really does help. Until next time.